0: To recap, for those of you that haven't been with us, what we have in this book is we have this man that we tribute the authorship to Solomon, or at least to his life story and at least to his wisdom. He had everything life could possibly offer. Wealthiest man of his time, most powerful man of his time, wisest man of his time. And he literally said, I'm gonna find out what this life is all about. I'm gonna spend money to get all the things that I want. I'm gonna exercise my power to get all the things that I want. And he systematically went through this search for meaning and he chased wisdom and he chased pleasure and he chased work and he chased relationships and he chased government and he chased all these things and he kept coming up empty. And so the word we have kept coming back to over and over, Solomon's word, is vanity. Sometimes translated meaningless or vapor. It's like life is vanity. Everything is vanity. And so you think about this and you realize, oh, he kind of had a pessimistic view. You know, you think? Yeah, he did. He had a pessimistic view. And yet every page of this book is also pointing us to hope. But it's pointing us to hope in some unexpected ways. Now, Solomon's perspective throughout the book is everything under the sun or everything in this fallen, broken creation is vanity. It's meaningless. It's futile. And so we get to this morning's theme. In fact, I just want to read you the key verse of our passage this morning and see if you can tell me what the theme is. What is Solomon talking about that's vapor, meaningless vanity? It's here expressed clearly in verse 14. So let's read it again. There is a futility which is done on the earth. That that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say, this Two is futility. Okay, here's the theme. See if you can fill in the blank. Life just isn't. Fair. Yes, yes, you did it. You know, you don't know if that's going to work. Is a pastor? So, you know, and it worked. Okay, life just isn't fair. That's good. Now something all of us know from almost the day we're born. Life isn't fair. So we've got three daughters, 14, 11, and seven, and they've all been through this. In fact, you don't really ever grow out of it, do you? But our seven-year-old in particular, like I it feels like it's 30 times a day right now. You know? She gets a cookie, and she's happy with the cookie, and then she sees her sister gets a bigger cookie. That's not fair. And uh, as parents, we all have the same response back. You know? It's kind of a lame response, but what do we say? Life's not Fair, right? And that doesn't help them, you know, but it doesn't help us either. We're just sort of stuck in this unfair place that we live in. And and I've been thinking about this, uh, and I like, where does this come from? Like, not, not the unfairness of life, where does that come from? We'll talk about that, but but where does this instinct for fairness, why are we so attuned to it? Like, why does it bother us so much when we see unfairness? and injustice and i think it comes from a couple of places one positive one negative the positive is we were made in the image of god and god is a just god and he made us to actually extend his rule of justice across the face of the earth genesis 1 and 2 that's why we were made that's our job description is to sort of be you know under rulers underneath the one true ruler and extend God's glory and his justice across the face of the earth. So that's kind of the positive, is you have an instinct inside of you for justice, for things to be right. Now there's a negative as well, because what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is that image of God got Deformed a little bit. It got twisted a little bit through sin, and we all kind of turned inward and selfish. And so, part of our cry of unfair, and I know this is probably the reason that my seven year old keeps saying it, is the little sinful heart that she has inside of her. And it's the big sinful heart that I have inside of me. It's, it's, we're, we're, we want things to be equal, oftentimes from a selfish perspective. So we see people that have more than us or we see people that are suffering less than us and there's a part of us that says that's not fair. So I think you got both things going on. Image of God playing out and our desire for justice but you also have some selfish perspective as well and there's no getting around the reality that our world's not fair. Just listen to this little list. Guilty people should not prosper while innocent people suffer. Does that happen? All the time. Vulnerable people should not get taken advantage of by those who know better. Isn't that true? They shouldn't. There's something about that that's not right. Does it happen? All the time. Meaningful relationships should not fall apart. Like we can all speak to this in our lives. Friendships, um, marriages, other things that you may have had in your life. Meaningful relationships meant something to you fell apart. That should not be. There's something about that that's not right. Uh, Lloyd mentioned one personal in our body just a a couple of weeks ago. You know, a mom with young kids should not get cancer. You know, Um, men and women should not die young. I mean, this is how life sort of works out. And there's a part of us that says this can't be right. And we live with these and thousands of other ways that life just isn't fair. Ecclesiastes is gonna help us see that that unfairness of life is something you have to deal with. Like not just accept it at point blank, but I mean, you got to dig into it. You got to ask the hard questions and you got to find some rest in it. Who do you turn to? Who do you look to? Solomon's looking to God. And he's even saying, God, I think it's kind of your fault. You're going to see that played out a little bit. Is that the posture that we take? Where does that lead us, etc.? This is where this text is going to be so rich for us this morning. I'll just say this last thing before we move on to the next verse. We have to deal with the unfairness of life. Otherwise, it'll eat our lunch. It will create bitterness in us if it's not wrestled through. It will create hardness of heart. I've seen it create faith crises in people that I know and love and care for. The unfairness of life. So here's the analogy I want to use. We've got to follow Solomon down this rabbit hole to face life as it is so that we can experience joy and hope in the midst of it. And that's where this text is going to take us as we continue through. Now, I, I jumped to verse 14. I want to go back up kind of to the top of the passage. And I'm just going to jump around this passage this morning. We'll get the whole thing. But I think it actually fits better if you group things thematically uh, rather than the, the verses that go straight through. And we'll put it all together at the end. But let's look now at verse 11. So we've studied verse 14, which is the big idea of the text. Now let's look at 11. Solomon's about to give a reason here why there's so much injustice in the world. Here it is because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. This is pretty profound. You know, what he's actually saying is the depraved condition of the human heart is such that without the fear of punishment, we will dive into sinful, selfish choices. And that's true. It's not just true out there. It's true in here. It's true in here, right? Right? This is where we have to start seeing that the problem of unfairness and injustice and suffering is out there, but it's also in me. It's also in you. If I think, I mean, without the spirit of God leading me, which by the way, I don't wanna understate the role of the spirit of God, but if I'm not in tune with the spirit of God, if I think I can make a selfish choice and there'll be no consequence of it, no one's gonna get hurt by it, I'm not gonna be hurt by it, more often than not, y'all, I'm going to make the selfish choice. Now, sorry to say that. I'm one of your pastors, and yet that's, that's true about me. I think it's true about all of us. I think what Solomon has in mind here is the broken systems of justice in our governments. That fits the context that Bill taught from earlier in the chapter. I also think he has in mind here, from the rest of the chapters you're going to see, the justice of God. And he's asking, why doesn't God just put an end to all the injustice by swiftly punishing the evildoer? Because God's not doing that. Because God's justice is not showing up in real time. The evil hearts of men and women are giving themselves over to sin. That's essentially what he's saying. In fact, he's saying there seems to be almost no correlation between what people deserve and what they get. So, is there really any incentive To do the right thing. Now, he will give a hint of an answer in the next two verses, but I want to hold that because I want to hold this tension. And I want to go to the end of the passage. And uh, Solomon's about to ask another hard question, which is why does God allow this? Like, what's God's answer when you ask him the why question? One thing I appreciate about this man is he does not shy away from the difficult questions. And here we go in verse 16. He's going to ask it. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night. By the way, um, I I dug into that because I was like, man, is the word of God telling me I shouldn't be sleeping? (laughs) No, that would be, (laughs) bless you. (laughs) That would be taking that phrase out of context. So here's the context of it, and if you read it across other translations, you'll see how it makes a little more sense. What Solomon is saying is sort of this this task that we all have of navigating life under the sun, the hardships, the suffering, and all of it, it just takes all that we are. I mean, it's like day and night kind of job. And those of you that have been through something hard, you know, man, you work at that at night because you can't get sleep. Your mind is constantly churning. And a lot of times what it's churning on is why God And so Solomon's doing that. He's directing his attention. I gave my heart to know wisdom to see the task which had been done on the earth. Look at verse 17. And I saw every work of who? God. So his attention is turned to God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. So it's not going to ever make sense to us fully. Okay, that's what he's saying. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. Even though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Lloyd talked about this two weeks ago. He said, you know, why do, why do, why do bad things happen to good people and, and you know, good things happen to bad people? Well, the answer is ultimately you can't know. God does not answer the why question very often. Now, anyone who's ever gone through something hard learns that you can't help but ask God the why question. Like, so don't feel guilty for asking the why question. But if you read through scripture, a lot of men and women ask God the why question, and God hardly ever answers it. It's as if God is saying, you will trust me most when you can trust me with your unanswered questions. And that's the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. So what we often want to do is we want to answer for God, you know. And we go through something hard in our life, and it's like, this doesn't make sense. So we start saying, maybe he did it because of this, and then this, and this. And we invent all these chain reactions in our mind. And you don't know. You don't know. And Solomon is being really honest here. He said, listen, I've got a little wisdom. You know, I'm the wisest man of my time. And I've thought and thought, and I've searched and searched. And the answer is, even if you think you know, you don't. Really, no. Now, this is going to push us toward trusting God, which I think is exactly what God desires for us in order for us to have fullness of life. But I don't want to get there too quickly because I want to acknowledge this is hard. You follow Solomon down this rabbit hole of injustice and unfairness and suffering, and what you find at the end of the rabbit hole is a big question mark. And unsolvable puzzle, a riddle with no real clear answer. And there's a tension that we hold. Now, what I appreciate about this text, the the whole text, is although it does not answer the why question, it does answer the how question. And the how question is, how are we to live in the context of a life that is not fair, How are we to live in that? So Solomon's going to give us two answers in our passage. The first is going to address this current age, this current kingdom, as Bill talked about last week, that we're living in. The next is going to address the one to come. So there's a present tense answer. There's a future tense hope. Two answers to the question, how should we live? Here's the first answer in in verse 15. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Now, at first glance, this sounds kind of like just numb the pain with delicious, fun, good feeling things. And that's how it's sort of been interpreted throughout the ages. So, you know, you ever heard that phrase, eat, drink and be merry? This is where it comes from. Now, there are six times in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon goes here. And, you know, philosophers, theologians, Bible scholars, they've called these the carpe diem theme in Ecclesiastes. Seize the day. And we've talked about these as they come. And those of you that have been with us through the series, you know, no, 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 Solomon's not just saying, go like waste yourself on on vain pleasure. That's not where he's going with this. There's actually something much Deeper, What he's getting at in all these Carpe Diem passages is this. Open your eyes to the good things you have and enjoy them. Literally find joy in them. So that word translated pleasure right there in verse 15 could also be translated joy. And some translations go that way and I kind of like that. So I commended joy. Well, how are you going to find joy? Joy in a creation that's wrecked. One of the answers is open your eyes to the beautiful, good things you actually do have. So you hold in your hands, men and women, more than just injustice and pain and suffering. You also hold things that are beautiful. You also hold things that are be- to be enjoyed. People, experiences, tastes. We talked about that one a month or two ago. Beauty. These things that are all around us. So God has not placed in your life a promise of a fair life. He's not given you that. Nor has he given you all the answers to your why questions. He's not given that in your hands either. But you know what he has given to your hands? Some beautiful things. Some wonderful things. Uh, That's why we keep coming back to this phrase as one of the key phrases for this whole book to understand it. Life is Gift, not gain. Life's a gift. Everything you literally have is a gift of God. There's no gain in it on this side of eternity. So since life is a gift, how do you live? Receive it as a gift. Go enjoy what God has put in your hands. It may be less than you wish you had, but you have some things to enjoy. And Solomon is saying, go enjoy them as a gift. So let me just get as practical as I possibly can. If God has given you a bike, go ride it. If God has given you a steak, go eat it. If God has given you a kite, go fly it. If God has given you a dog, go walk it. If God has given you a cat, I don't know how to fill in the blank. (laughs) If God has given you a spouse, go on a date together. If God has given you a parent, go on a trip down memory lane together. If God has given you a child, go play together. If God has given you a family, go on a vacation together. If God has given you a friend, go out to coffee together. And if God has given you nothing but yourself, you still have him. Amen. So here's what Solomon is saying. Receive life for what it is and enjoy it for what it is. It is a gift from God that is undeserved. Now, if it's undeserved, that makes it unfair in the best possible way. So you see, this fairness thing cuts both ways, right? Now, that's the first answer that Solomon's gonna have. How do you live now in a place that's just a wreck, that's a place that's, that's hard? Yes, you grieve, you hold all this tension. There's other passages in the book about that, but he keeps coming back to this theme. Enjoy what you do have in your hands. Don't be so conscious of the unfairness of life, the things you don't have, that you miss the things that are right here to be given to you, to be enjoyed, Now, we're going to go to verse 12 and 13 and talk about the second answer, which points us to the place that is still yet to come. Look at verse 12. We'll put both of these verses on a screen as a block because they're meant to be together. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, that's unfair, by the way, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Okay, here's the context of what's going on here. Solomon is struggling with an unfair, broken world, and he's saying long life even is not what you think it is. In other words, the context of the day, people thought if you lived a long time, that means God liked you. And if you died early, that means God was against you. Solomon is saying no, 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 no. there can be a sinner who's like a hundred times. That's just his exaggeration of like this. This guy is like doing nothing but sin, 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 sin all the time. And he may lengthen his days. And guess what else? He might even be buried with a good funeral. He might even have good things, nice things said about him at his service. He may have seemingly no consequence on this life. And yet he's coming to something and he's saying, but I know it will not go well for him. Now, the only way he could say that is if there's something beyond the grave. That's the only way he could say that in the context of this passage. Now, this is significant because Solomon rarely goes there throughout this book. You have to understand Solomon as a theologian in BC 1000, not in AD 2018. What that means is, in AD 1000 or BC 1000, God had not clearly shown his plan for the afterlife, there were only hints, there were only glimmers. And so Solomon has already said, in in fact, in, in, in chapter three, verse 22, this is what Solomon says. Who really knows what comes after death? Solomon didn't know. And so death has been this great wall of his entire life that frustrates him. He can't get over it. He can't get around it. He can't get under it. And yet right here in chapter eight, in these two verses, he's saying, you know what? I don't know all that I don't know, but there's got to be something on the other side. He's sort of saying there must be something on the other side of the wall. In these two verses, and this happens so rarely, we're camping out on it here intentionally, it's as if he's turning his face directly at the frustrating, immovable wall of death and saying, I know there is something on the other side. There has to be. And what is he saying there's on the other side? There's actually two things in these two verses. He's saying, even though we can't see it, there are two things that must be on the other side. A reckoning and a restoration, a reckoning and a restoration. Let's look at it in the verse. So are they still up there? Yeah, leave those verses up there for a few more minutes if you would. Let's start with the reckoning, okay? He's saying, although a sinner does evil a hundred times may lengthen his life, then look down at the end of verse 13 or or look at verse 13, it will not be well for the evil man. There's the reckoning, okay? Now, Solomon is saying God's favor is not measured by how long your days are, all right? God's favor is measured by something else altogether, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the big idea here is he's saying there will be a final reckoning. Life under the sun is not the place where the ledger is balanced out. You see that? That's what he's saying. Now, going hand in hand with the reckoning, there's gonna be a restoration. It's, it's, it's the, the opposite, the beautiful opposite of the painful, all right? So look at that he says, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God. Now, this is where it's helpful to dig into the original language a little bit. Because if you double-click on the word well, what you find out is it's the Hebrew word tov, T-O-V. It's often, usually, translated good it could also be translated pleasant, beautiful, orderly, right, or well. And the best known usage of Tov in the Hebrew Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 1, where God Himself uses this word over and over and over. In fact, God is creating the heavens, God's creating the earth, the whole universe, and he keeps this familiar rhythm. God saw what he made, and he said that it was good. Tov. And that's the word we see repeated over and over in Genesis chapter one. God made something, he said, he saw it, he said that it was tov, that it was good. So I think what Solomon's getting after here is he's saying, I know that someday things will once again be good. They will once again be good. Tov, they will be restored to the state they were created in. So Solomon couldn't clearly see past death, but by the inspiration of the Spirit, he could say somehow it will be tov for those who fear God. All will be well. There will be a restoration. All right? So the suffering, the brokenness, the hardship, there's going to be something in the age to come that's going to make that all well. That's going to make that all Tove, and so he, he's by the faith that God's put in him. Although his faith was sometimes small, this Solomon guy, but he had enough faith to say, "I can see there's got to be something beyond the wall of death. It's going to be good for those who fear bad or fear God. It's going to be bad for those who don't fear God." So we got to talk about fearing God, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, that's as far as Solomon could go. We can go further. In fact, we can go a lot further than Solomon could because we have sixty-six books in the Bible. We have the entire revelation of God that he has for us, that he's given us. So where, let me ask you, you theologians in the room, which I hope is all of you to some some level, um, let me ask you, where does the reckoning of God and the restoration of God come together? Maybe the better question is, in whom do those two things come together? Jesus Christ. Okay, that's always going to be the right answer. Jesus Christ. Now, in the person of Jesus, the God-man, specifically in the cross and the resurrection, you see the reckoning and the restoration coming together in this incarnation do you see this? Let's, let's talk about him each. Let's talk about the reckoning. On the cross, Jesus took the guilt of everyone who is evil, which includes me, includes you, includes everyone who's ever lived. And as that collective guilt was laid on him, he, in a sense, became the man who did not fear God. Because all that was laid on him, and it says, the, you know, the father had to turn his face away. Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, that relationship between father and son was severed because of the sin of the world. And so he was, in essence, living out Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12, 13, as the man who did not fear God. He became for us the one for whom it did not go well. It was not Tove for Jesus on that cross, physically or spiritually in that moment with his father. You, you, you following this? He did not lengthen his days like a shadow. In fact, he died young. He died young and he died unjustly. In fact, is there any moment in time that was more unjust, more unfair, more upside down than the moment of the cross? Literally the one innocent man who ever lived on the entire earth being punished for all the guilt of everybody else. There is no more unfair moment in the history of creation. Now, if you're ever tempted to question God's love for allowing injustice and pain and suffering, and if you have not yet, you will be. If you're ever tempted to doubt God's love, remember, he did not choose to stay above it all. He entered into the very vortex of the unfairness. He entered into the very center of the injustice. Jesus, in a sense, said, I not only know unfairness, I bore unfairness on my shoulders and I trudged up a hill to pay for it. You see, now, in that very moment on the cross, there was a reckoning. Shortly thereafter, there was a a restoration because that body did not stay dead. And so what should happen to a body with the process of decay that naturally kicks in? You know, God the Father saw fit to just kick that thing in reverse gear and said, no, 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 no. I will not let your bones see decay. And that moment of resurrection was a restoration that points to the restoration of all of us in Christ and ultimately the whole creation, which will be restored as well, all through Jesus Christ. So scripture talks about this order. First Christ, then those that are in Christ, And then Paul in Romans 8 says, all the creation will be made new, will be released from its bondage to futility. Now what will happen next, because we're not to the final stage yet, we're in between the cross and the new earth, what will happen next is Jesus will return. And guess what happens when he returns? There'll be a final reckoning and a final restoration because that's what Jesus is all about. He's about fulfilling the reckoning and fulfilling the restoration. Solomon was sort of just saying through a veil, there's gotta be something there. Jesus says, yes, there is something there. I'm gonna live it. So when Jesus returns, there's gonna be a final reckoning and a final restoration. Here's the final reckoning. The evil one will be bound and locked away. Praise God. Injustice and suffering and pain will be separated from the people of God. The broken feudal creation, which Solomon calls life under the sun, will be remade in Jesus. And the tove of God's good creation in the Garden of Eden will be restored. And justice and righteousness and fairness will rule under the leadership of the true king. That's what's coming. So that leaves us with one very important point in this message. If life is not fair in both terrible ways, and wonderful ways, life is not fair, this, this life, then how do we live? We've already gotten one answer, right? Like enjoy what God's given you right now. But there's another answer as well. Now, clearly from Ecclesiastes, the key is to fear God, right? We've heard that over and over. It's right here in our text. Like he's saying, that's the difference between the one that it will go well for and the one that won't go well for. The difference is, do they fear God? That's the answer. Now, theologically, we have to connect that to the work in the person of Jesus. In the fullness of God's revelation to us, we see that this concept of fearing God is very intimately cl- connected with Jesus Christ. So let me explain. Lloyd and I have worked hard at fleshing out some hopefully useful ideas to help you understand what the fear of God means because it doesn't mean that you're scared you're gonna get zapped by a lightning bolt. Okay, that's not what this is about. So I'm going to put on the screen the three that we've talked about so far, and then I'm going to add a fourth. So here's what it means to fear God. It's a wholesome dread of displeasing God. Now, wholesome is an important word, you know. It doesn't mean that you're just like, like, like oh, my goodness, God's out to get me. Far from it. But it's also not the idea that, you know, you're driving around, so Jesus is my homeboy, you know, we got this, you know, Thing. I don't really matter what I do, you know. No, 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 no. God is a holy God. And there is a wholesome dread of displeasing him because he's your maker. Number two, a holy awe of God as he is revealed in Scripture. Okay, that, that builds on that same theme. Number three, a humble awareness that to hear God is to obey God. You remember that message that Lloyd gave? Man. You know, he says, be careful how you walk into the house of the Lord because you're going to hear the word of God taught. And and if you don't hear and obey, that's going to be a problem for you. Now, I want you just to think about all these, and I hope you're sort of feeling this sense of like, uh (laughs) uh-oh. I'm feeling it. Like, I've not done all that well. I haven't lived that out perfectly or even close to perfectly. Who has ever perfectly lived those three out? That's the answer. Now, here's the fourth that I want to add. The fear of God is also a hope-filled faith in Jesus who died and rose to make all things new, starting with you, starting with me, and eventually the whole creation, you see. Now, you don't just do the bottom one. But you can't do the top three without faith in Christ. You can't do the top three without transferring your trust in your own ability to fear God into the one who perfectly feared God on your behalf. And so the only way you're going to learn to have a wholesome dread, a holy awe, a humble awareness is to say, Jesus, my faith is in you. I believe that you have gone through the reckoning on my behalf and you are bringing about a restoration in me, a transformation in me, so that I can live out the life that you've called me to properly in these other three. So I actually think you have to start at the bottom. And that becomes the foundation for how to please God, how to live with God. Now, this is how the follower of Jesus fears God, by fully trusting the only one who ever perfectly feared God. That's how we do it. We cannot fear God apart from Jesus Christ. That's the message of 66 books of Revelation. You cannot please God, you cannot honor God, you cannot fear God apart from the one who was sent on your behalf to be the means by which you fear God, which is faith in him, trust in him who did it for you. So here's what you can do, men and women. All those unfair, unjust things in your life are still true. And they're still hard. But over here, you've got one unfair, unjust thing that's beautiful and is life-giving. And it's the exchange that Jesus Christ made for you. So you can live in light of all these unfair, hard things Only by trust in the one unfair, beautiful, wonderful thing because it's the one thing that really matters because what it means is it will go well for you because you have feared God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Who feared God for you? That's how the gospel works. That's why every message in this book has led to Jesus Christ. That's why you can't live the Christian life apart from the spirit of God who always points you to Jesus. That's why we're preaching the gospel through Ecclesiastes. Now, for all those who have faith in him, you can rest. You can rest. Your reckoning has been dealt with. And your restoration has begun. And it's only gonna get more and more and more beautiful as you trust Christ. Now, we can also live as outward expressions of this undeserved grace that we've received and point others to the one who is making all things new. And so that's how we're gonna close our service. We're gonna sing a song that's all about Jesus and is gonna center us in the gospel. And then I'm gonna benedict. I'm gonna send you out to be witnesses and messengers of the grace that you have received. So let's pray and then we'll close our service in song. Our Father, we thank you for The unfairness of life. And when I say that, there's a heaviness there. How can we thank God for the unfairness of life? Well, you saw fit to enter into it. You saw fit to conquer injustice by injustice. You saw fit to bear the weight through your son Jesus of all the penalty, all the reckoning, so that we have a restoration to look forward to. And and for anyone in the room that they just have not understood what the gospel actually is, I pray that they would, by faith, through your, your spirit that gives faith, in this moment, be able to shift their trust from their own efforts to please you, from their own efforts to fear you, to the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And to all of us that would call upon the name of the Lord, there's something here that we need to know that our reckoning has been dealt with and we have only restoration to look forward to. And Father, I pray that that grace would fuel us to fear God, the God that saved us. That would fuel us not to sin more, but would fuel us to love you more, fuel us to love others more, and ultimately point them to the hope that we have. So we ask this in the name of Jesus for this body Fellowship Bible Church in Brentwood, Tennessee. In Christ's name we pray, amen.